0: His so teachings.
1: True. And so he pastors, um, him and his wife lead a congregation in Plymouth called New Covenant. And just a little piece of information, mm-hmm. I've shared with you before that there's been one church in New England, um, many from outside, but one church in New England that has supported J Hop and since our since our inception, and it is their church. Amazing. Um, and so they've partnered with us in prayer, they've stood with us, but they've been an extraordinary inspiration to us. And so we love and we appreciate yes. and we respect you. Thank you for coming here to minister to us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank God. Amen. Love you. Amen. That's great. I want you to, to again introduce my wife, Charlene, who's with me today. And, um, and today I only have 800 pages of notes. I tried to keep it under 1,000. No, it is great. It's great to be here. I've always uh, enjoyed. uh, You know, sometimes you you recognize that every church, every ministry, we are connected by God. But God connects because uh, not everyone can support everyone. Not everyone can get involved with everyone. However, God is led. So this is a God thing. We have a great heart for what you're doing. Um, I've had a great heart for Daryl and Bethany for years. We knew them before they were married. We knew them when they were young. Um, and anyway, the point is that uh, it's been a, it's been exciting to um, to watch this grow, to watch this come to pass. And so, what I, I have sensed from the Lord, um, I had you know, I've got these PowerPoint, I've got PowerPoint presentations that are hundred slides long and all this kind of stuff over the years. But I just sensed this morning, I want to minister to you on a foundational doctrine that will uh, allow you to put things into perspective regarding the history of where you are. Now, it is my uh, deepest conviction that the problem that has been in the church over the years and have studied church history and being uh, somewhat of an historian as well as uh, studying the theology of the church, that whether you are one week in the Lord or whether you've been in the Lord 10, 20 years or more, There are some key things that when the church does not understand these things, we tend to go into detours, and we miss the main thing. Always you want to keep the main thing the main thing. You don't want to end up on some detour somewhere because it has happened throughout church history. Let me share one other thing before we get into this doctrine, and I'll explain it, and we'll go to a text of scripture and deal with it. Every doctrine in the Bible is balanced. What that means is that um, you can take a truth and you can take and push it to one extreme or push it to the other extreme and the danger is it still has a little truth in it. But the problem is when you don't take both together in God, because there's one thing about God, you will never totally figure Him out. He designed himself that way. (laughs) But when you push things to one extreme or another, that's where the church has been in trouble. And I'll explain a few of those from every doctrine. Now, when I say balanced, I don't mean mixed. I'm not talking about compromise. I'm talking about balanced truth. And it's important to recognize that because when you look in church history, you can see it. You can see the detours that come. And uh, I'm not... You know, I, I've been in all kinds of conferences around the country and in foreign countries and um, it's, uh, it's kind of interesting because churches are all in different parts and, and they can be emphasizing extremes without knowing it. It's not a matter of indicting someone's intention. It's a matter of just saying, Lord, we want to we set this in in balance. Now, I want to share with you the doctrine of the providence of God. Now, this is a doctrine that was taught in the church for generations, for centuries. It was recovered during the Great Reformation in the 1500s and the 1600s. It dominated the thinking of all those who founded this country. It dominated their thinking to such a degree, it didn't mean they were perfect. It didn't mean they had everything applied. But this is the beauty about God's truth. If you incorporate the truth of God in your mind and in your heart, the truth will carry you. In fact, you can be teaching truth that you're not living, and then you'll grow into it. That's the beauty of it. You're not going to be perfect. You're, and we can find fault with anyone. And um, it reminds me of a time I was debating an individual that, um, it was kind of a friendly debate and we were in front of some Christians. And this individual had said, well, and had named some of the sins in America's history. And they named the sin of slavery, and they named the sin of uh, breaking native covenants that had taken place. They got some of the dates wrong, but that's all right. They were, they were, they were actually, uh, and that's, that, that's the problem with me, you know what I mean? <laughs> My mind's going, ah, you're off by that. But it's still, that's all right. I mean, they named the sin, they named it accurately, and they recognized, hey, these are sins in America's past. And I'm nodding and I'm saying, You have yes, that's true. That's a sin in America's past. Well, because there are these sins in America's past, America, the nation, could never have a Christian history. So my response to the individual, I said, Are you a Christian? And they said, Well, yes, I'm a Christian. This was a friendly debate. I said, Well, what I would like to do is interview your wife for about five minutes. And I said, Why? Because I want to know if you have any sins. That you have not repented of. Because obviously, if you have any sins, you can't be a Christian. You understand that what we do is take things out of balance. I said the issue is not having sin. Every nation has sin because every nation is made of people and we're all sinners. And they become iniquity over time. But the point is, if they're practiced, the real issue is what's the confession of that person? You are saved by grace based on a confession, and over time, God will deal with your sins. Right? And that's what God wants to do. So what I want you to do is turn to the book of Acts, chapter 17. I want to read this passage, and then I want to um, just highlight for you several key points that I, um, I want to, you to see, and see clearly that whether you are personally going through anything, this, this applies to you personally, it applies to a family, it can apply to a church, it can apply to a nation, it can apply to a city, all of these things because that's the beauty of God's truth. So Acts 17, and I'm looking at verse 22, now to give you just a, a brief introduction of this, Paul the Apostle is here, he is addressing non-Christians who are in a, a place called Mars Hill. Now Mars Hill was a place in the Middle East where you would debate things. There was a philosophical place. And uh, he has seen, I really love this because uh, I, I really have an affinity because he has just seen a monument. When there's a monument, my, my wife is driving, she's trying to say, no, don't look at that monument, because we're going to stop, and I have to figure out who put it there, what's it there for, everything else. But the point is, I'm just kind of drawn to plaques, monuments, and historic markers. But here's the, here's the idea. I'm going to ask you this question. This is the context here. What if you had to minister to a generation and a culture that had lost all sense of who God was? What if you were called to a culture that completely has abandoned all of its roots? No longer is anyone looking to God for any meaning. No longer how would you bring the Christian message to individuals who are turned off by religion, turned off by anything to do with God? In fact, you're in a philosophical rut or a circle that you simply say, anything you believe is good, just add it to anything else. Now, the theological term for this is the people that were in front of him had embraced what we call additive belief. Additive belief simply means that, oh, you believe there are nine gods that live on a certain planet and that, and that rotate around each other. And I said, Great, that's, that's cool, man. That, that's cool. Sounds interesting. Okay, no, I don't believe that. I think there's only four. And he's got the wrong planet. That's okay. man. That's a, why don't you, if, if you, that's okay. Add the two together. That's okay. Everything is truth. And if you put it all together, we will have soup. And the soup can be called uh, additive truth. Because no matter what happens in your life and in your mind, you keep adding to it. There's nothing that is wrong. Everything is okay and good. Now, life contradicts this because what happens to us at times is not good. It is evil. But just don't think about that. Just add these things too. that idea of additive. Now, by the way, additive religion was Roman religion at the time of Jesus. It is exactly what was practiced. The Greeks added the worship of man to the whole thing because Greek mythology is attempting to make God in man's image. And so it's, we just take everything, all the problems that we have on earth from divorce and to all that kind of stuff and you just put them in heaven. So now all the gods get divorces and they're having fights and everything After all, it makes us feel better if God can't get along. <laughs> What's he upset with us for? <laughs> you know, if we kill each other, no big deal. They're trying to up there. But the thing is that you have this idea that um, somehow we just have this additive thing. So how would you ever reach a culture, and we might say this, it's interesting that in America we've never faced this before because of our history. We are facing a Greek and Roman culture now. The more you study Greece and Rome, you study today's culture. So how would you do it? What Paul the Apostle did brilliantly under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is he taught them, without them even knowing it, the doctrine of God's providence. And this is the beauty of it. It can draw us in. There are key points that I want to make with this. So that, giving the context, let's listen to just a portion of his message. It says in Acts verse seventeen twenty-two: Then Paul stood in the midst of the Aragopagus and said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in all things you are very religious. Now, first of all, they're all like, yeah, 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 we are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. So there's a monument sitting there. To the unknown God. That makes everybody feel good. (laughs) To the unknown God. And now this is what he says. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. Now let me continue on because I want you to see this. God who made the world and everything in it since he is Lord of heaven and earth does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said. For we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him From the dead. Now, of course, some mocked, some received, but here's what I want you to notice. In the beauty of this, the further a culture gets away from God, the more that we need to preach first God as Creator before we then press the claims of Christ the Redeemer. See, there's a a powerful lesson in this sermon. Notice he goes through the message, and toward the end, there's a day of judgment, and you need to repent. See, in a Christian culture like this, you could go on a street corner and get on a little box and preach repentance from sin. Very important doctrine. I do not believe in a Christless Christianity. I do not believe in just coming to Christ in soup. You do need to repent. And there's no question, there's one Jesus and Christ to whom to come. But I want you to understand there's a progression that is the mercy of God. God is not attempting to reject a culture, He's attempting to bring it in. Therefore, the goal is not to look at how rotten the culture is or people are and then simply repeat it over and over. Isn't this a tough day to be alive? Yes. And isn't it terrible? This is what I heard on the news. You haven't heard it all. I heard this on the news. Isn't it amazing? And we've become very cynical, very cynical in the evil that has increased in our culture. We get to the place where we repeat it over and over again. We think, I I can top whatever you think, because I read conspiracy books. (laughs) I can tell you it's worse than you can even conceive. I know the people who pulled the strings behind. I don't know them personally, and I hope they don't know me. But the point is that dealing with those things, you can do that. But let me tell you something. In God, the doctrine of God's providence begins with a loving Father. He is the creator of all. I want you to understand that uh, there is a, uh, there's a phenomenal progression here. It's important because if you look at the city in which you dwell, the neighborhood and where your church is, and all those things, God, God created you have to look around and you say, God created the people that made the buildings. God created the individuals and brought them, as this doctrine will go on to say, at the perfect time, in the perfect place, to name the street. See, we should never go and just say, oh yeah, what street is that? Okay, let's go down there. You know, street names, places, neighborhoods, they are, they are by God's divine decree. This man is not sovereign, God is sovereign. Therefore, there, there are things that will change our whole perspective. And they change our perspective on history too. Because you can always, someone said to me, well, you know, there's a movement in America, someone had lamented that there's a movement of tearing down monuments everywhere. And they said get rid of all the monuments. And if you find a blemish in the person the monument represents, well then tear it down. Well, of course, it depends on what your standard is and what the blemish is. But in many cases, there, there are true sins there. But I once commented, somebody said to me, well, what do you think about this destruction of monument movement? And this was not a Christian asking me the question. And I I paused for a moment and I thought, these are the things I live for. I love it when I'm asked a question like that. Because I paused for a moment, Holy Spirit, how do you want me to deal with this? What do you want me to say? And I, I know basically I turned to the person and I just said, we have to be very careful. And they looked at me. I said, you need to be very cautious why you're tearing them down. I said, what do you mean? I said, because if you aren't careful, the premise by which you're tearing them down, everything you believe in will be torn down too. You need to be careful to make sure of that. Why are we doing that? What, why, what is the purpose? Because once again, the key thing is, it's not, oh, there's a, there's a sin in the person's past. I, I've made this statement many times. There's sin in every event that has ever taken place if some person is involved. You get the sin with the person. You get the mistakes. No event is pure. The key question is, what will we teach our children? We teach our children, this is what this man did, don't follow that. But this is what he did, and you do follow that. And this is what this woman accomplished, that's what you follow. You emphasize the things that God emphasizes. And you expose the others, and then anyone can be instructive. And there are times when you don't want to honor certain people. But those things are a standard we no longer, as a community, necessarily share. But here's the point. You do start with the loving Father who is God Almighty who created all people. In fact, He created everyone. He created your enemy. He created people you don't like. But if you love God, you realize, you know what? I don't like that person. I don't like what they said. But they're a creation of God. Matters not how they live. Matters not where they live. Matters not what they've done. They are creation of God. For many Christians, we get so cynical, it's almost as if, well, they're beneath me. No, don't do that. You know, reject that sin. You're not elevated. He's elevated. What we need to do is say, Lord God, you keep me grounded here on this first key point. God, you are the creator. Not only that, the moment you embrace creation, and God, who God is, think of it this way, I, I, I love this historian, uh, scientist, who, um, who, uh, who does these things, who writes these books, I've got, I've got a fairly big library, um, and, but I tell you, some of, these, some of these individuals are really good, and I'm just going to give you a quick synopsis of, just think of this for a moment, because i got to move quickly on some of these points, but I'll tell you this, are we end at three, is it? But here's the the thing is, when you're going on these key points that you look at this, think about this for just a moment. God the Father created all people. Automatically if you bring people or at least assure them, do you know God created you? Some of the most powerful messages you could say to anyone. I have had Christians who've come up to me and they said, "Well, how come you're friends with this person or that person?" They're openly doing things that I wrong because I said because I know their father. I know their father and I have the same father. And therefore I will reach out. They're not a Christian, they're not in the church, they're not a brother and sister, they're not they're not that, that kind of relationship, but they are created by God. And the interesting thing that can happen is the moment you say to someone, "God created you," and the Father has a plan for you," it changes everything. Do you know? Number one, it refutes atheism. Because we just said, "God created." Just a simple statement. Second, uh, this Henry Morris, this great creation scientist, and uh, he said the following it immediately refutes pantheism because God is separate from his creation. God created. Not only that, it kills polytheism because it's one God that created all things. It dethrones materialism because all matter has a beginning. In other words, it's not the stuff that created God. It's God that created the stuff, so therefore the stuff can go. Not only that, dualism is defeated because God was alone when he created. See, we don't think about this. This is what happens with doctrine. When you lay down a simple principle, here's the first one. I want you to... To leave here knowing God, the Father, made every person. If it's that person that's in your class in college, if it's the person that lives in the other tenement apartment next to you, across from you, the one that does things, you're you're about to go nuts. Think about the neighbor that drives you crazy. Think about the person that's causing you all kinds of issues. The first thing to affirm, God, you, you know, blame God. No, no, God... You created that person, and Lord, I need to recognize it. You know, it dethrones humanism because man is the creature, not what? The creator. And it dethrones evolution because God created it instantaneously. The word evolution needs to be recaptured. It's not a bad word. Uh, you evolve as a person. You mature as a person. That's the way the word was designed to be used. We're talking about a system that says that there is no God that created anything. No, you see, God himself, it, it's phenomenal. It's, it's that ideology that God is creator. Now, let me give you a definition from the first Christian dictionary written in America, Webster's 1828 Dictionary. Now, you guys will love it because it's on—it's online. Look, in my day, we had to buy it. It's like this thick. It's massive. And because he wrote essays on the defining of all words. Noah Webster, in order to write his dictionary, you probably heard of him. Of course, he's alive in the late 1700s, early 1800s. Uh, It took him 22 years to write the dictionary. He traveled to Europe, and he researched and understood 28 languages in order to be able to put the dictionary together. And he derives the root of the meaning of words in English down to their root, Latin, Greek, and Hebrew words in the Bible. So it's a biblical definition. So a lot of times when you look up a word, you're getting a doctrine. This is what he says about providence. Not Providence, Rhode Island now. This is the doctrine of providence that Roger Williams named Providence, Rhode Island after, by the way. Anyway, he said this. It's the care and superintendence which God exercises over his creatures. He that acknowledges a creation and denies a providence involves himself in a palpable contradiction. The same power which caused a thing to exist is now necessary to continue its existence. Some persons admit a general providence but deny a particular providence, not considering that a general providence consists of particulars. Now see, he's preaching a sermon here. But I'm just simply saying to you, it introduces something that's very important for God as creator. First of all, each human being has a common parent, God the Father. Also, we recognize this, that God himself, he said, look, you are in ignorance worshiping a God you do not know. Let me proclaim to you who he is. You and I need to be be positive and confident enough. Edward Winslow, he was the ambassador of the pilgrims when they came in 1620 in New England. And one of the things he did was he actually wrote a letter where he repented of something. It's kind of interesting because he said, I came and thought that the natives and the natives that were living in our area were irreligious and were uh, the kind of people who had no interest in any god. I was wrong. They are very religious and they worship the creator of the universe. They don't name him what we name him. And I perceive this. Then this is a powerful point. Now, he was the ambassador. He's the one, Edward Winslow, who learned the language of the natives so they could communicate back and forth. And Edward Winslow said the following, which was a powerful statement. He said, I perceive they worship the same creator, but do not know the redeemer. Which he goes on later on to say. In other words, they have the same Uh, the the same creator. They are worshiping creator God. Uh, Certainly a whole lot better to reach your neighbor affirming that God created them. God's not against them. Are you with me? He's for you, not against you. It's powerful. It's a powerful statement. Now, I want to introduce this though to you to understand. There was another a concept that was a derivative of this doctrine. It was very prevalent at the time of our revolution here in America. It was called the creator-redeemer distinction. What does that mean? Well, Samuel Adams, father of the American Revolution, who wrote lots of letters, introduced this in a letter in 1772, and it was just recapping what everybody already knew. And he said the following, all people are created by God the Father, and they have rights of life, liberty, and property. And then he goes on, if you are a Christian, you know Christ as the Redeemer who redeemed your soul and is taking you to heaven. But all are under the Creator, Father God. You follow me. It's a distinction because we do not need you. This is what's happened in Christianity. Here's how we've taken things to an extreme. The church has taught, well, since I know Christ the Redeemer and you don't, you are so far behind me, so far beneath me, you are, you, it's an us and them philosophy. It's the idea that somehow there's just this massive chasm. Well, there, of course there is in salvation. But what we don't understand is God the Father is the one who's the creator, who is shedding his love abroad, drawing us to come and introduce the Redeemer. And the the most important thing for us to recognize is if we own divine providence, you immediately know nothing that happens to you is accidental. Imagine that alone. Now some will say, well, some terrible things came. Yes, and it's not that God wanted to hurt somebody or wanted to do that. The point is this, though. God will use anything, and His design will bring it into fruition. So we establish this first thing. God is who? Creator. And specifically in the Trinity, it's the Father God who is the Creator. Now, here's something very interesting. It's in this passage as well. Not only is it a passage that teaches us the doctrine of providence, but it teaches us those particulars. In fact, when we deal with those particulars, I want you to think of it this way. He said, you, in, in ignorance, you're worshiping this monument to the unknown God. I declare to you who he is. He's the creator of all. Now notice what he says. Uh, the implications are. If God is creator, there is only one human race. Of one blood, God made all people to dwell on the earth. When he uses all, all people in the Greek, it's ethnos, it's ethnicity, it's ethnicity. There are many ethnicities, but one human race. What does sin do? It creates many human races which fight each other, not knowing they have the same father. You see, the sin of racism is so insidious because it is taking us off and away from this foundational doctrine. We have to come back to it. We are all of one blood. Therefore, there are no groups and ethnicities that are less than others. Nobody's better than. You see, what happens is if one race receives Christianity and over a hundred years they build into it, they say, well, that's a Christian race. These people over here, they're ignorant races. Wrong terminology. Improper understanding. You're saved by grace, not ethnicity. God saves you by grace, not because of what color of skin you have or anything else. All colors of skin bleed red. We're of one blood. So God, here he has. Now what a unifying, what a healing statement at the Areopagus. What a powerful statement. God is made of all, one blood, all nations. So there's a powerful statement here of equality, isn't there, before God. All stand equal before God. No race is above another. Uh, And so I recognize that, that, you know, this is what happens in a nation like America. So God shed His grace on thee, as we know, as it says, and God did. And the people who came here, they grew up in Christianity. They grew in Christianity, thankfully, to be convicted, to recognize they were inconsistent in areas. And what an amazing thing to live in a nation, by the way, where the main document, the Declaration of Independence says, all are created equal. And when it said all men, it was not generic, it was generic, mankind, male and female. Abigail Adams made sure John understood that. It is very clear that it is an equality of races, equality of sexes, equality before God. That was what it was. In other words, was America living at that level? No. No. But the beauty is, it was established on a rock we had to climb to. And it was not something that was going to fall and crush us unless we would refuse to repent. And it takes time. It takes time to repent. It takes time to go through those. So here's the issue, though, again. God is saying, look, I am the Lord of all. That's the common point. And then he continues on. He says this. And I have appointed the times beforehand. Oh, what is this? In other words, the way to identify God's sovereignty, the way to identify the Father and his love, is the way he supernaturally times events. They happen in this event because it does not chance. This event happens before that event. Why? Can you imagine? First of all, I do not want God's job. Anybody? I, look, uh, there are times when you think, you know, God, I'm real concerned. I think you missed this one. <laughs> Timing's off. This person's going through this in the church. Uh, the timing couldn't be worse. I mean, I will say these things. Now, prayerfully, most of what I say is to Charlene, and it doesn't get behind the pulpit, Okay. <laughs> The church has no idea what they owe her, okay? They have no idea, okay? (laughs) No clue, all right? And the point is, you better not say that. And then she's sitting in the front row, and I start to go there, and her hands, anyway, the point is, I realize it, okay? And I I say to the, I can't say it to the church, but they ought to know. But the point is this, you realize, I can say, man, what couldn't be worse timing for this to happen, that to happen, I can't believe it but what I'm confessing is wrong. Yes, I'm torn because for the person in it, it's bad timing. Understood. But I have to affirm. I've got I've to climb up back up on the rock that I was standing on before, and I've got to say, Lord, God, your timing is perfect for your intentions. God does not eliminate problems of, from people or disappointing experiences, He uses them to bring you to Him because He wants you to choose to follow Him. He doesn't create robots. He doesn't create individuals who do it because they have to. He wants people who worship Him because they want to. There's a big difference. You know, I've taught school for years, and I can have a ninth grade student in front of me. And I am so excited to teach the course I'm going to teach for ten months And I'm telling him at the beginning. When I taught algebra, calculus, trigonometry, or history, whatever I taught, I would come in at the beginning of the year and then you have these ninth graders who are looking at they've heard about me (laughs) from their brothers and sisters. And I start off and I say this algebra is going to be your favorite subject. You are going to love it. You will not be able to sleep at night because you are going to get in you're, after I teach it you're going to say a negative times a negative is a positive, a, a, a positive now one of the reasons I tell them that is because I'm going to teach you the biblical principles in creation that produced algebra and then you're going to know the reason why you see when God subtracts something negative in your life it's positive yeah yeah and the cross is a plus sign. You want to go to algebra? Yeah, it's exciting. So when every time, so here's the point, though. I'd say at the beginning, I remember one student, he raised his hand, he says, Dr. Jaley, that's a great try, but I'm not buying it. <laughs> Just he had this affinity against algebra. I don't understand it. I said, that's really bad. I'm going to pray that you would repent and and start to love it. But the, here's the point, though. You and I recognize that timing is critical, and this is what it says in the verse: that God times all the events in a person's life. He works it out. Imagine there are sometimes when I think the timing is wrong, and I'm trying to assume God's responsibility. Come on, he's dealing with the timing of everyone that lives in Asia, Europe, North, South America, everybody all throughout history he has got, that's way beyond my pay grade. I'm not touching that, okay? That's God. He's bringing all those things into fruition. See, you You might have come here the first Sunday last week or the week before, and you might have thought, oh man, I, 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 th- I think I'm going to try this. You had no idea that God was saying, yes, I think you are going to try that, you see? Because the moment you put God as first cause, which is the doctrine of providence, the creation, when you put God as first cause, you are also defining all of our free will. We are secondary causes. Now I know it. It's very, very humbling to be secondary. I understand that. We all want to be top dog. But there's only one who created everything. And just as Webster had said, issuing the doctrine, if you create it, you are the one who caused it. Therefore, God causes. There are secondary causes. There's my will too. Now his is capital W. Mine's a little W. I still have one because he wants me to choose. But God has first cause. He was saying through Paul, through this whole crowd, there's God who has timed you, timed your appointed times, who has made you right here, right now, to hear this, this moment. You couldn't have orchestrated it if you tried. And if it was all up to you, you never would have been here. This is the timing of God. Most often we see it years later. Hindsight. We go back and go, oh my gosh, if that hadn't happened and this hadn't happened, then that wouldn't have happened and I wouldn't have been there and I wouldn't have heard that. That's right. That's the beauty of history. When you look back at history, you see the timing of this. I remember when I was working on the the main, the original main colony, which was planted in uh, 1609, about the same, 1607 rather, the same time Jamestown was planted, you know, they planted a colony in New England. And at the same time, it only lasted nine months, they went back, they abandoned it for lots of reasons, and if that had happened, we would have been not the nation we have today, because in Jamestown they were reestablishing English government, that wasn't all bad, and they had God there and everything else, but in Maine, there was exact replica. We would have been a national, centralized nation with a monarchy, just like England and Europe, and we wouldn't have been unique and different in an expression of Christianity other nations didn't have at the time. doesn't make us better. It makes us owe that to God. But now that would have happened. I look back and I say, Well, those nine months, it didn't mean God didn't like those people. And, you know, one of the leaders was only 24, found out he had just inherited himself, and in today's terms, became a millionaire. He got on a boat and sailed back. He said, Look, I can live in the wilderness with you. Oh, I just became a millionaire. See ya. Off he goes. The oldest guy with more wisdom, he dies. And all the whole colony starts to implode. And they give up on it. And over in England, they give up on it. And they say, well, we don't know who is ever going to be willing to go to the wilderness of New England and try to live through a winter. (laughs) Who wants to do that? I mean, it's better to live in heat than in cold. And that's just the way it is. And they very During the very same time that's happening... And that colony's been abandoning. A small group of believers in a church are ratifying a covenant that says we will follow God whatever it costs us. The timing can't be orchestrated any other way. And they work for 13 years building themselves into a church. And so in 1620, it's a church plant that comes to New England that has total self-government and is totally different. Now I look back at that and I said... What? Who would have timed that? God. It wasn't even the timing of the people involved. They thought they were late. Then they had to leave because the truce of Spain was ending. All those kind of, those are secondary causes. So let me just make this practical. The doctrine of providence in your life is simply this. You get up the next tomorrow morning and say, oh, well, I have to go to work. I have a job. That's a wise idea to go to work. If you have a job, you want to be able to keep the job. So you, you go and you're going to go. You decide what you eat for breakfast. You decide what you're going to have for dinner. Who are you going to meet with that time? You have choices and you do all those. Keep in mind that all those choices you have being exercised are secondary causes even in the mundane my wife can send me to the supermarket please get this and I know what you're like she'll say don't get this don't get that and I love cell phones for that reason I'm in a supermarket I call up is this what you really meant and and I've been laughed at I've had other ladies they're watching me and they're just laughing we know what he's doing he's getting his instructions okay on what to get And how to do it. Well, you understand that. You go in and you get those secondary causes. But one thing you have to recognize, in the midst of all those what you consider mundane ideas, I might go to the store, I got lost, I then got there late, I walk in and I have an instant divine appointment with somebody that if I had been on time I would have missed. And I realize there's a first cause. There's someone overriding this whole thing. And if I lose sight of that, that God the Father is overriding it, just like this nation was formed, and the, the, those timing of events come in, you realize that God was overseeing this. Not just this nation, God oversees all nations. And gives them all kinds of godly histories that they can go back on. So the object of doctrine of providence is the timing of events. There are no accidents in this case. It's not just chance. It's not playing the lottery. It's not, those are, those are chance things. This is God overseeing your life. Why did you meet so-and-so at such a time and not the other time? How come you came on this Sunday and not some other Sunday? You know, you might have come on this Sunday, expected one thing, and you got a tall guy from down in Plymouth. And you didn't get what you thought you were getting. And even if you don't like it, it's God's timing. <laughs> yeah, I'm just saying, all right? So I recognize it's secondary and primary. But then let's go a step further. God, the creator now, creates all these things. He is the creator of all things. He's the father who created all people. He times their lives. He doesn't just time their lives. He oversees the places where they go. The Bible even says here that God preordained coastlines for nations, boundaries for nations. We have interludes where boundaries can set up. One of the worst things that ever happened after World War II in this nation was when the people got together after World War II in order to overpunish Germany, what they ended up doing was rewriting native boundaries of countries in Europe. They said, now you are no longer in this country. So imagine living somewhere where your heritage goes back four five hundred years for family ties, and now you're just told from the top, uproot, you've got to move, you've got to move over to this part of the nation, you no longer live in this nation, we're just rearranging the boundaries. Now that's man's attempt to destroy boundaries, but ultimately God wins ultimately there are boundaries of nations that may end up changing according to his plan. But the key thing, it won't be changed by some group of people at some uh, uh, area that just want to rule the world. We're talking about individual uh, lives here. God has placed you in a place. That is what I mean. Practically it's this. You don't live wherever you live right now on the street you live on by accident. You might say, well, you don't understand. I never wanted to live there. You have no idea how much I tried not to live here. I said, but you live there. And all the effort you want, God's involved in it. And you might move next month, but God is overseeing it. See, if you recognize this, the street you live in on is his providence, all of a sudden it takes on new meaning. It's not just, yeah, I just happened to live here, and now i got to get along with people. No, you live there because of God's design. Begin to own that. What is the street name? You might think, this is just an idiosyncrasy I have as a personality. It's true, I have it. But I want to know where that sign came from. Where did that word come from? How come this is called what it's called? Why? Why is this? Of course, Cambridge itself is called Cambridge after Cambridge University in England. That's well, important to kind of know. It was a place of study. It was a place to study God's Word and to see how His Word relates to every area of life. So you're in the right place. You know, you could say, well, gee, how about this or, or that place or, or the other? Yes, Boston. Think of it. Boston itself is a city set on a hill. That's, the reason is, is because the pastor, John Winthrop, who was on the board, he was actually became the governor But he was appointed on the whole expedition by a pastor who in history books was called the father of Massachusetts until the 1920s and 30s. His name was Pastor John White. And Pastor John White is the one who sent John Withram over here. He's the one who wrote the covenant for Boston. And you know the key to the whole covenant for Boston is that we would be so exercised in our following of Christ that we would be an example to all those who don't know him and would win them to Christ. That your example your character would win people to Christ. The fact that you show up on time, the fact that you have integrity in your job, those are the things that would win people to Christ. They're gonna to come to you and say, Why do you work with a smile? You have the same boss I had. And we don't smile. We're trying to figure out how to get rid of them. And you smile. And you say, because I serve Father God who orchestrated the whole thing so that I would be here. And he's your father too, by the way. And he loves you also. And he has a plan for you. I don't ultimately work for that boss. God has me here right now and I want to bless him. You want to bless him? Yes. I'm here to bless whoever provided me this job. I want to bless them in such a way, I want the business to succeed. I want him to succeed. I want his family to be whole and well. I want all those things to be there. And if there's anything I can do to help it, that's what I'm doing. That's a secondary cause getting in line with the primary cause. We call that doing God's will. And by the way, there's a kind of derivative that comes along with that you get to fireproof your job. Look, if I'm a boss and i got to downsize and there's a smiling employee that always is telling me, bless you, I hope you'll get wealthy by anything that I could do to help you, I just, you're the last person I'm firing. <sighs> i got the other person that's... I want longer breaks, more vacation, higher pay, but to do less work. <laughs> well, who am I going to keep? I'm going to keep the happy, smiling employee that keeps talking about first and secondary causes. I have no idea what he's talking about. But I know this, man. They smile and they bless me because that's what God does. That's how he works. All places that people dwell, there's there's some aspect of intersection. Now, let me say this. When we say, I all of a sudden realize there's a purpose for why we dwell here. There's a purpose why you are in this building right now as a church. There's a purpose why you're on this street right now. I know you guys tend to be mobile, because I've followed you. And every time I come to speak, you're in a different place, okay? So I get it, all right? I get it. And you just, you just love putting, taking down chairs, putting up chairs. I mean, it's just in your, it's in your bloodstream. <laughs> I understand that. And it takes a long time, and did a lot of work. Uh, I'm glad you have a real young congregation because that's good. That's good stuff, man. You know, in our church, if we had to keep moving, we'd be going. Like, yeah. But still, you have to be in a place where you recognize, hey, God, you are, you are doing this. There's a purpose behind it. The moment you start thinking purpose, that intersection between primary cause and secondary is what we call heaven-touching earth. It touch, All of a sudden, you go to church. Oh, because they happen to meet over here right now. No. We're there for a reason and a purpose. God has his kingdom coming in that area. There must be something on these streets, people who live right near here that need an intersection of heaven with earth. They've got to be in such a way that you are the very people they need to meet. You are the very kind of surface that will draw them in. And you start thinking of that, changes everything, folks. We call that a heaven to earth encounter. We call that an opening. Some people call it a portal. Some people call it all kinds of stuff. But what it is, is heaven intersecting with earth. And that's what we pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not just a prayer. It's an encounter. You can have an encounter with God as you study the doctrine of divine providence. Because that's the whole point. So we've just done point one. The introduction. (laughs) The thing is that you and I need to realize God the Father oversees it all, sees it all, and there's no one outside His purview. And God the Father created all people. If you go back to creation, it solves a lot of the mess that we see around us. That's the loving God the Father. He times all events. He puts people in the exact right location. We can apply that. The history of New England is in, when we look back we can see, it is amazing that Plymouth came first in 1620, up here in New England. They wrote a covenant to be a church. So we have a church plant. They come as families, first time. Nobody explored with women and children prior to 1620. So they came as families in covenant As a church, that was unique enough. Because they came first when Salem was discovered, when Salem was settled rather in 1626, they began to model theirs after the precedent, which was Plymouth. In fact, the people from Plymouth sent a delegation up to Salem to lay hands on the leaders and they had an ordination prayer meeting of Plymouth blessing Salem. And Salem, because of its name, named out of Psalm 72 by Pastor Higginson and Pastor Skelton, when they did that and they prayed for that, they said, listen, Salem, we're going to be a town of peace. What had come is they had been a split in England between the pilgrim and Puritan. Pilgrims, separating from the English church because the English church was no longer following the ways of God. Separation is different than division. If you have to separate, you do it with love and kindness, and God, God goes both ways. You both want to follow God. You want that. That's, tur- that's just expansion of the kingdom. Division causes discord and all kinds of problems. But the point is, you had Salem, and then you have Boston. When John Winthrop got here, and we're talking a big crew here, 17 ships, 1,000 people. But it's different than Plymouth. In Plymouth, the women and children got right off the boat as soon as a small hut was made where they could live in. They had to live on board the Mayflower Yeah, two-month voyage plus two to three more months living on a stinky ship like that before they could even go on land. Until they finally came. When Winthrop came, he had upper echelon, very wealthy ladies who said to their husbands, I'm going to stay on board until you build me a house like the one we left in England. And many of them died on board the ship. They didn't come with the same... But they came with something Plymouth didn't have and Salem didn't have. They came with numbers. They came with uh, an ability to do things that, that pilgrims couldn't do. And you had this order. So is the order all chance or is it a design that we see in the back? A covenantal design that now replicates itself in Salem and then replicates it in Boston as a city set on a hill that cannot be hid. When John Winthrop writes that on board the Arbella, he made it very clear. He said this, If we obey God in this covenant, other people will say, make it like that of New England. Make it like that where the kingdom of God has come. But if we disobey, we'll become a byword to the nations. So here's this powerful covenant, and they're all built on one another. You can see it happening. And all of a sudden, you see New England begin to sprout out of this covenantal heritage Because why? We can see the timing when we look back and say they weren't accidents. Even the mistakes were not accidents. Because God works them in. Can you imagine being powerful enough to work my stupidity into his plan? There's something I know about the Bible too that I'm I'm not the only one. There's others who've made, anybody made mistakes that you know of? Okay, you know. There's probably ones you've made that you don't know yet. But you've made them, so relax. The Holy Spirit's very good at revealing them at the right time. But the thing is that you know that I made mistakes, and God still works the mistakes into his plan. This is so powerful. He is the creator. But now we're not done. We move on to this passage, and we say this, that you might seek the Lord, it says. That God has done all of this to cause you to seek him. Now the Bible makes it clear in Romans you naturally will not seek God. If it's all left up to you, there's no one that seeks him, no, not one. The book of Romans says, because our own nature is such we seek ourselves. Uh, if there is a God, it's me. That's very convenient. I happen to know me, at least I think I do. And I'm God. And I worship self. That's the original religion, anyway. It's the worship of self. Now, if I can get my mind off of myself, though, and I recognize this, God then turns me through the timing of events, through His causes, secondary and primary, through the fact that I come to understand I'm made by God. All of a sudden, if I'm made by God, if He timed these events, and I'm in the place that He knows where I am, I may as well seek Him. And therefore, that we might happily seek after Him from all nations and kindreds and tribes. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, you have God the Father, created all things. Everyone is equal before Him. Now the Holy Spirit moves and says, I'm going to work in your heart to seek God. To seek Him. That you might find Him because He's not very far from you. He's your Creator. He's Father God. He's right here. So you come and seek Him. This is what happened with the interaction of those who truly followed Christ. Now, there were those who made all kinds of mistakes. And they violated treaties, and they violated things with, with the native neighbors and others. They made those mistakes. And God would, ev- would work those mistakes into his glory because there are consequences when you work against God. And he allows you to reap those consequences. They help discipline you. They, sometimes it's generational. But you and I recognize that if this is the case, the whole purpose is that we might seek God. We might come after God. We might hunger after God. Who could explain the fact that um, the uh, Puritans are having a church worship service on Martha's Vineyard? And uh, the vineyard is, Martha's Vineyard was called the Island of Revival. I like it already. (laughs) And you can go around Martha's Vineyard and stop in the key places and just see pillar after pillar to revival on that island. But it all started with a Church service, they're just worshiping God, and a, and a native comes looking in. And you begin to think, uh oh, what, what, what's going on here? He comes in, he starts to seek God. Later, once he learns English and they learn the, uh, the, the tongue of the native, they begin to compare notes. And he said, looking back, that he said, there was something in my heart that moved me to that meeting. Come on, folks. It's, you happen to be here at this time, in this place. I live down the road, and you are here. And I'm moved to come in. And I learned. he becomes a native preacher on Martha's Vineyard. And he stands on a boulder, and he starts to preach where the rock used to be for sacrifice. He now preaches, there was one sacrifice for you. His name is Christ Jesus. He didn't become a slave of the white man. He became a follower of Jesus because the Holy Spirit moved on him, and he then came and sought that out. Not only that, but uh, when he was discipled and trained by Pastor Mayhew, he was he was trained. He would gather all the native children at the foot of the rock, and he wrote children's stories on how to teach the gospel to all the other natives. He became a writer a teller of stories, and dealing with this. And this native became famous. Not only became famous, he became a bold, supernatural preacher with signs and wonders on Martha's Vineyard. I mean, you'd say, how is this possible that he would say to the witch doctors, and he said to all those that were casting spells on he and his family because he had come to Christ, and he said this, he said, I have read in the Bible about Elijah. I have read in the Bible about this. And I tell you right now, go ahead, do whatever you want, but my God he is so powerful, he will bring healing. And all of a sudden people came and God instantly healed of their sickness. And they would run back and they would tell someone because often when the witch doctors did it, they got sicker. And it pretty soon five come back. Now Pastor Mayhew, he's like, you know, healing ministries weren't popular back then. I mean unfortunately, sometimes today, he would have said, well, I me mean, just see. You know, I, I, could, I, could, I could make some money. No, he didn't say that. He said this. God, I don't know what you're up to, but you're the only one that can heal. And then what if God came down and healed those people? And pretty soon, a large number of people come. So that only 30 years later, when Mayhew's going to leave and go back to England, 1,500 believing natives come and meet with him. Folks, You can't make this stuff up. And that's because who is at work? The Holy Spirit. So you could say, the doctrine of divine providence, I know that Father God created everybody that lives in my apartment, everybody that lives on my street. God put me here right now for a reason. I wasn't thinking of it that way. I was thinking of, how do I get out of here? (laughs) But God, you put me there. Not only that, you time it. I've just come up to my apartment and the person I can't stand drives up. (laughs) Now, this is the perfect time to let him get a piece of my mind. Or, the Holy Spirit starts to work. Okay, Lord, I repent. I repent of that thought. How amazing that it just so happens that this person is walking in. So God, how do you want me to connect? See, now you're living in The providence of God is not some stuffy doctrine stuck in a book. Now you're living in it. And it's the Holy Spirit that's right there with you. At every moment, drawing people. You need to keep keep asking the people you work with, who's being drawn by the Holy Spirit to me? Who is it? Why do I live here? What purpose am I in? Because then you will seek the Lord. Now I want to go to one other passage before we close. Now I want you to turn to Psalm 105. I decided to end earlier than three. But in Psalm 105, I want you to see something that we could illustrate, especially here in New England, but we can illustrate it a lot of places once we know the history. Here's how God works. So how do people seek the Lord? What, what is this now? What is the... This, the um, Holy Spirit is moving with people To do this. And this is called the pattern. Psalm 105 is not the only place in the Bible where this is given. But this is a good, succinct description of the pattern of how God uses covenant. So I want you to look at Psalm 105 and look at um, verse 3 Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. And his strength. Seek his face evermore. Remember his marvelous works which he has done. His wonders and the judgments of his mouth. O seed of Abraham, his servant. You children of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever the word which he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham, his oath with Isaac, and confirmed it with Jacob for a statute or a law. Now, now let's, let's think of this. Here's what he says. Those who are seeking God, when you seek the Lord, understand, remember that as you are seeking God, God has had people before you seeking Him as well. And how do you seek God? This is not whatever you want God to be like, God will become that to you. He will identify with you, but it's done by covenant. He remembers. God said to Abraham, I will bless you and your blessing will go to a thousand generations. According to biblical history, there hasn't been anywhere close to a thousand generations since creation. But here he says, to bless a thousand people, the covenant which he made with Abraham the oath with Isaac, and the law with Jacob. Now think with this. That's three generations, by the way. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember when God revealed himself to Moses, he said, uh, I'm going to come and deliver my people Israel. But I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. See, now here's the point. We must own a multi-generational view a continuity of the generations. The way way we own this doctrine is, the only way you'll make sense of history, you have to go back. What's been done before? Oh, you know what? That wasn't done right. Well, why did you learn that that wasn't done right? So you can do it in a different way and correct it. Instead of lamenting over the sins of the past, we have to know them. Don't get me wrong. had They have to be exposed. Then we would say, God, I repent of that. And God, I don't want to do that. I want to do it differently. A multi-generational view. Now, folks, I I look at this and I say, I'm a multi, this is multi-generational. For some of you, I could be your grandfather. (laughs) There could be three generations in this room if we mark it out by time. That's good. That's great. And we have to realize this. That's the power of this. You need to think back and say, who are the leaders that brought us to this point? Not only do you honor them, but you say, what is it that they have brought to this point? Where are we in this situation? And where are we going? See, folks like me, I look back and I say, I can name my mentors. I can name the people who brought me to a place where I am today. And here's the way the pattern goes. Uh, Let me just tell you, I understand political activism. I understand wanting to get laws changed. My concern is this. The concern is, if it's not changed covenantally, it'll be rechanged quickly. Now that doesn't mean don't stand for righteousness and doesn't, but prayer is critical. Now here's what I mean: you have to think of it this way. How does God mature the seeking process of the Lord by covenant? So God makes a covenant. What is a covenant? It's agreement with God. God, we agree with you as a local church, that you, you want us to be in covenant with you and in covenant with one another. So we're going to have some small groups that help people come into covenant, function together, fellowship together, lots of activities. That's great. We want to come into. But here's what you need to recognize. Own that covenant and recognize the following. Covenant will then move to oath keeping. Oath is a promise. Think of it this way. Okay, here's Abraham and he's going up the mountain to sacrifice his son Isaac. They make a covenant at the bottom. Now, the way you make a covenant, so Darrell, come on up, I'll show you how to, the Hebrew, the Jewish way of making a covenant would be this. So if you turn this and you face, you hit my elbow, all right, like this, so I'm going to, this is it. Okay, now look at this. See this? This shaking of the hand was called a weak covenant. Why is this strong? Because if we're grasping like this, it's going to be tougher to knock us down. You, well, you with me? Something like this, or like this. No, no, no. That's not going to make it. Okay? And I know you have all these kind of things you do. You know what I mean? You get, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, but if we get in here, understand, this is an oath. You follow me? A covenant maybe. God, you should give him the covenant. Now, I'm going to support you. I'm going to minister with you. And you have my word. If, God, if God's going to lead me elsewhere, I promise I'm going to communicate and not just walk out the back door. <clears throat> I've been around a long time, okay? So you, you go, hey, this is an oath. That's more powerful than just stating a covenant, isn't it? All right? Now, so that there's, if that's the case, if there's an oath taken with this. That's generational. It, generationally, there's an oath. And then the laws get changed when enough people in the oath so that they're changed voluntarily and not enforced on people. The law becomes the confirmation of what God is already doing. That's what we're praying for, folks. We're not just praying to get statutes changed just to change short term. Are you with me? If you're thinking kingdom, I want the laws to change where the people see the value of changing those laws. And they see it because they see people who've worked as oath-keeping one to another and have kept that promise and loyalty, not promise, I'll never go, I, I'll stay here. It's not an oath to Daryl and Bethany. It's an oath to God and then to say, in order to walk up and raised up in covenant, we're going to communicate, we're going to discuss, we're going to work things out. We're not just going to run when the fire gets hot. And we're not just coming because, hey, we're great. Look, I have people, they can come to our church and say, oh, pastor, this is, my wife and I have ways we talk about this. Oh, pastor, that's such a powerful word you just preached. This is so awesome. There's no church like your church in all of New England. It's absolutely amazing. The more they keep going on, the more I'm saying, I've heard this before. You do not need to pour accolades on it. Just make an oath. Walk in that word. Communicate. Come in. And sometimes it will take generations. Are you with me? So now you folks, you're here. You're excited. I mean, a lot of you are in your 20s. Oh, I remember the 20s. No, not 1920s. Do not look at me like that. But I remember when I was in my 20s and everything else, I did not often look behind me. But I tell you right now, look behind you. There are 10-year-olds, 14-year-olds, 16-year-olds watching everything you do. And you need to say, this is not just going to be one generation. This is not just going to be one splash. This is not just going to be one massive hit in our lifetime. Praise God. No, I am moving forward with the kingdom so that after I'm gone in the stands, I'm cheering on those coming behind me. The kingdom is bigger than just living here. Man, that becomes powerful. And that's exactly what this verse refers to. You'll happily seek the Lord while he may be found. And then we bring you to the third person of the Trinity, Christ, the Redeemer, the one who says repent. And then you get loyal to the Redeemer of your life and your soul. But what this is, is praying into reaching a culture that is far from God. Each of these can be prayer points. You say, God permeate us as a church into giving the love of the Father. The affirmation to every person that they're made in the image of God. I had an individual coming up to me wanting to debate. I knew they were wanting to debate. In fact, I was in another church. They had a very, very well-oiled security system. The individual was calling to disrupt the meeting. We found out later they were there to cause all kinds of ruckus. They were in the lobby, and um, they were, and, and so the security team was moving me to the other part. I saw, I got a glimpse of the individual. He's, he's, about, he's about 6'4". I'm 6'5". And he was standing in there, and you could tell he was being a little bit restrained. And I said to the person, no, I want to go talk to him. And Because the security team was basically just going to take me out the other way. So I went over to him. I looked him in the eyes. And then he he realized, I don't even know if he really knew who I was. But then, of course, he figured it out pretty quickly because the two guys that were next to me. And and he said this. He says, how come you want to take away rights from people? I said, I don't want to take away any rights. You have the same Father God I do. I, I knew I had like 10 seconds. To look him in the eyes. You have the same uh, father who loves you. The same father that drew me out. And you can just see the resistance start to melt. The anger. Because you and I are going to be sent out as healers. Into a culture that is immediately said, because we don't agree with certain things that other people do that we hate them. It's immediately, oh, you must hate them. No, you have the same God, the Father. He times all events. He knows exactly where you live. He knows right where your church is at. And we say, God, bring us to seek you, to make an oath that this is going to go on generationally. We're not here for us. We're here for the kingdom. And as a result, many people are going to meet Christ, the Redeemer. Amen? Amen? God bless. Can we- Um, Do you mind, before we transition, will you share with them briefly about Plymouth 2020? Sure. Do Do you mind doing that? No, it's fine. So we are attempting to also have next year's the 400th anniversary of the Pilgrim's arrival. The the number 400 in the Bible is a kingdom number. And you'll see the patterns of 10 generations in the scriptures that uh, are very clear with that. So we believe there's a cataclysmic opportunity for us to reclaim why the pilgrims came. There's a lot of other events going on that will tell how they came and that they came, but why they came. And we are beginning on a Sunday, June 28. So you can mark it down. I'll be sending you all the stuff. We have new stuff being printed in the next few weeks, so we'll get that all to you digitally. And you can. But June 28, we know the dates. Sunday, June 28, in the midst of a massive maritime festival right in Plymouth, we are going to reenact a pilgrim church service right on the waterfront. I'm going to actually preach, re-preach a sermon written by John Robinson, their pastor. And we'll do it in costume. We're going to sing the same songs. We're going to do an actual worship service so people can have a glimpse. This is who the pilgrims were. And then, 5 o'clock that afternoon, Sunday, June 28, we are intending to have a massive youth rally around Forefathers Monument. We've invited Marshall Foster, Kirk Cameron from the movie Monumental, but what would, and whoever ends up coming, that's fine, but here's what we're doing. This is a youth rally, there's a worship, worship bands that are coming, and we are surrounding, we'd love to have 5,000 young people around that monument. That's an assignment for you guys. You know, uh, we'll work all that out, you know what I mean, and get you in. Then the next two days, we have tours. People can take of Plymouth. We have a, um, in Memorial Hall, we're going to have a drama and whatnot. And Tuesday, some more tours, seminars. We have some of the best historians from the nation coming in. And all around town and a couple of places you can go and you can learn more. And then we're going to see a reenactment of the landing of the pilgrims on Tuesday afternoon, night, during that time before it gets too dark. And be able to reenact it all with this idea. We want to... Tell it just in the words of the pilgrims. And we want to do it in such a way that they tell their story. And their story was simple. God brought us to these shores. We formed a covenant. We lived by that covenant. And our children began to grow up with that covenant. And the kingdom of God came. In fact, this is why they came. Someone asked me succinctly, they said, why did the pilgrims come? They said it this, a great inward zeal we had to lay some good foundation for the propagating and advancing of the gospel of the kingdom of Christ into these remote parts of the world. though we will be as stepping stones unto others for the performing of so great a work. Imagine, they knew they were stepping stones for future generations. We want to look back and say they could never have conceived of the religious liberty that was founded in this nation. They couldn't have conceived of what would happen. So let's go back to a snapshot in time, and we have individuals coming, folks, that are going to share why the Pilgrim story has inspired them from various races and various nations. We have a Nigerian pastor who's going to be there and say, why do I, visiting in the face of, and ministering in the face of Boko Haram, why do I believe the Pilgrim story has inspired our church? You could go on and on, because it's going to be something you need to be there. But the rally, Forefathers Monument, 5 o'clock, we'll look to see you there. I'll see you before then, I'm sure. All right? Praise God.